All right, uh, let's just open up with a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you for this word, Father. And I just pray that, um, Lord, we would just have this knowledge of you tonight, Father God, to know you and know your ways more intimately, Lord, and be more acquainted with who you are and what you have done for us, Father. Open our hearts and our minds to your word tonight, God, that we might know you better, Lord, be in our midst. Holy Spirit, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you do for us. Amen. So uh, we are continuing in the book of Hebrews. So if you were, if you missed last week or if you missed any of the Wednesday nights, you can go back and um, all these are online. You can, you can go through, um, go through the, the sermons with us. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter nine tonight and I'm going to read all of chapter nine. So it's just Hebrews chapter nine. All right, so let's read. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can now not speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drink and various washing and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Let me stop there for just a minute. Let me just tell you what's going on here. He's talking about the Old Testament way of uh, bringing people near to God, right? There always had to be the shedding of blood. So there would, there was one high priest and the high priest would go into the holiest of holies once a year and he'd have to go in and he'd have to repent for himself and he'd have to give his offering for himself. And then if he was accepted, then he would give the offering for the sins of the people. And this had to be done once a year, every year. Okay. Verse 11, or, yeah, 11, sorry. But but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. And those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be necessity of the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water 
scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us all. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Whew. So let's recap um, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. And these are, these are describing numerous aspects of the old covenant, okay? Such as worship regulations and the sacrificial ritual in the tabernacle. It discusses various rooms. It discusses furniture and the Old Testament worship center. The author's purpose is twofold. To contrast the high priest's service in the earthly sanctuary under the old covenant with Christ's ministry as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary under the new. And to show how these various aspects in the old covenant foreshadow the ministry of Christ. If you want to know what God is going to do, look what he has done. If you want to know what God is going to do, look what he has done. The Old Testament, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, everything, that was to foreshadow the ministry of Christ. So under the Old Covenant, salvation and a right relationship with God came through faith expressed by obedience to his laws and this sacrificial system. And these had three main purposes. They taught God's people the gravity of sin. Because sin separated sinners from a holy God and they could only be reconciled to God and find forgiveness only through the shedding of blood. Okay. The second thing is the covenant provided a way for Israel to come to God through faith, obedience, and love, which is what God has always shown. And three, this system foreshadowed Christ's perfect sacrifice for sin. It's foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do. So Hebrews reveals to us uh, I believe Ethan preached this last week that the first covenant was imperfect and incomplete because God found fault with us. God found fault with the people. It was a temporary provision until such a time that God's perfect provision in his son would be given. This new covenant was not an afterthought in God's mind. It was always necessary and it was God's plan from the beginning until a perfect time and season in history. And the purpose of Jesus' death is to put away sin. Removing it entirely. Not just covering sin as the, as the, the blood of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. He entered once into the holiest place in heaven. Because the tabernacle in heaven... The, the tabernacle on earth was created after the tabernacle in heaven. When God had specific orders and plans, it was after the tabernacle in heaven. So then we see here that he entered the holiest place in heaven. 
so that he could sprinkle his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven. In verse 21, it said, Moses, he's talking about Moses sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And so this Old Testament sacrificial system foreshadowing Christ's work in the heavens. Therefore, verse 23 says, therefore it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with this, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The better sacrifices being Christ's blood poured on the altar in that heavenly tampered tabernacle once and for all settled in heaven. What will be done on earth shall be done in heaven. So scripture tells us that the blood of Jesus is central to the New Testament concept of redemption. On the cross, he shed his innocent blood in order to remove our sins and reconcile us to a holy God. So Jesus's position as mediator and high priest of the new covenant is based on his sacrificial death and his shed blood. Last week, Ethan talked about the, the priesthood. We're talking about the blood tonight. And there can be no mention of the love of God apart from the shed blood of our savior. Which is why I reject the love gospel that's going out. There's no mention of the high cost of the blood of Christ. There's no love without the cross. There's no love without shed blood. And scripture tells us my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Knowledge of what? A knowledge of God, a knowledge of who God is, a knowledge of his word, a knowledge of his ways, a knowledge of his precepts, his laws, his principles, his plans. And if we don't know these things, we are destroyed. The Bible says we are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So tonight I want to give you some knowledge of the power of the blood of Christ. Just see my, where's my... Where's my, there is wonder working power. What's the, where's, there it is. There's wonder working power in the blood. Anybody know that song? There is power, power, wonder working power. We don't sing songs like that anymore, right? Let's bring them back. So we're going to talk about the power of the blood of Christ. So the first thing is his blood forgives the sins of all who repent and believe. In verse 22, it says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So without the shedding of the blood of Christ, there's no remission of sins. That's why I said there's no love of God without the remission of sins. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, There's some heresy out there. This is not a universal thing in which some teach there's no need to repent. There's no need to do anything. It's just a fact that he died. And because he sacrificed himself for her humanity, we are all saved. Scripture does not teach that. Jesus is not all inclusive. The call is universal. It's true that all are invited, but it's the few that find the way and will take the narrow path for whosoever will, yet only some will. Those who repent and believe 
will receive his sacrifice. As it was during the days of the Passover, and you remember reading about the Passover, only those who applied the blood of the lamb according to God's directions were passed over by the angel of death. Salvation is God's plan, not man's. Therefore, it's according to God's plan, not man's. Not my plan, not your plan. Salvation is God's plan. Through his blood, we can and do receive a complete washing away of our sins when we do things the Bible way. When we repent and we realize our need for a savior, that I cannot save myself. I cannot redeem myself. I cannot deliver myself. I need a savior to save me from what? From my sins. When we realize that we are a sinner, that my sin not only destroyed my life, but it separated me from a holy God. I cannot draw near to him without my sins being cleansed. We cannot come in his holy presence. We would die. If your sins are not forgiven, you will come into God's presence and you will die in his presence. My sin must be eradicated once and for all by his shed blood. And is the only remission for my sin. And we are only considered children of God if we are washed in the blood of the lamb. I know that there's a a, a fallacy out there saying we are all children of God. That is not true. We are all his creation. We are not all children. We are only children of God if we are washed in the blood of the lamb. Otherwise, the Bible says we are still children of the devil and the wrath of God abides on us. Have you truly repented and turned away from a life of sin? And if you have not, I question if you even recognize your need for a savior. If you have, he said, you are washed clean. And he gave us power then. To be new creations in Jesus Christ. And we have to hold fast to this truth. One of my favorite scriptures is the second Corinthians scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a beautiful promise. If the shed, that the shed blood of Christ has been applied to my life, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. My past is gone. My sins are washed. I am new. Only through the power of the blood can he make a sinner a saint. And we have to hold fast to this truth. It's knowledge. That in Christ, by his shed blood, I'm completely forgiven and made new. The second thing his his blood does is his uh, his blood ransom us from the power of Satan and evil powers. 
Revelation 12 alone says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb who overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Isn't that interesting? The end part of that. We're not talking about that tonight, but you can chew on that for a little bit. First John three, eight, he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So then not only do we have complete forgiveness of sins, we now have power to overcome our enemy. We can actually resist the devil because the power of the blood of Christ. If anybody tells you they can't resist Satan, maybe they're not saved. Satan then has no more control over me. Fear has no more control over me. The Bible says that before Christ, I was bondage to the spirit of fear. Why? Because fear had torments and fear has death. That spirit of fear, I was in bondage to that. But through his blood, because he overcame, I can now overcome the enemy. I can overcome fear. I can overcome Satan. I'm not subject to fear's torments. I'm not subject to these things. The Bible says that God has given us a sound mind. This is the, this is the idea that our mind now has been saved and protected. And because it's protected, then the opposite of that mind is given to fear, panic, or unfounded and unreasonable thinking. And the Bible says we have power then to think correctly. That's what it means by sound mind. I have power to think soundly. I have power to think correctly. It's a beautiful promise by the blood of the lamb. So when we say things like this, this is why I say knowledge is power. If you apply the word of God, I am not in bondage to anything because of his blood. I can overcome all things. I can do all things through his shed blood. His blood is not just forgiveness. It's power. It's the power to overcome. In fact, the New Testament word for grace is the Greek charis. It's C-H-A-R-S, A-R-I-S. And if you look it up in the Strong's definition, there's one definition for this Greek word. It means the power of God on the heart and its effect in life. And people say, well, grace is forgiveness. Well, it's much more than that. It's power to overcome. The blood of Christ is power to overcome. It's power to be victorious over this world, to be victorious over the enemy, to be victorious over my thought life. So this is why I tell you that those have a victim mindset. It's demonic. It's not scriptural. And therefore, it's not of God. What control are you giving to the enemy in your life? Because you're giving him control. To fear? Are you given fear control in your life? The Bible says that he that fears has not been made perfect in love. Is there anything that is seeking to control your life? And why is it controlling your life? The blood of Christ gave us power over the enemy. 
this should excite you. I don't, I, I don't understand why people are. Thank you, honey. I'm going to preach to you tonight. What are you giving yourself over to? Because the power of the blood of the lamb is power to overcome my enemy. That should excite you. That should say no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I won't fear when an army comes against me. I don't fear when anything comes against me. I don't fear. Why? Because the blood of Christ has given me power to overcome. Y'all need to wake up and get some coffees in here. His blood justifies all who believe in him. Yeah. Romans three twenty four and 25 says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now this word justified, it means to show or regard as innocent. So it's to be declared not guilty. It's directly related to God's forgiveness in Christ of the guilty and repentant sinner and becomes as if that person has never sinned. Justification is a, uh, should be used in the judicial aspect. Okay. So it's a judicial word. Okay. In which we are viewed from God's point of view because of Christ's shed blood. God then imputes or credits that righteousness of Christ to the believer. It's not my own righteousness. It's his righteousness. And this is best understood in a legal sense. Jesus is my advocate and he presents me before the father as being credited with his righteousness. And therefore I am found not guilty before the father. So justified means. No one is justified then apart from the redemptive blood of Christ. You're not justified without the blood. But with the blood, I am justified. Someone said one time, just as if I'd never sin. And this is how we can also recognize those who are in Christ and those who are not. First John 3, 6 or 8 says, whoever abides in him does not Sin. It means what he's saying here, what John is saying is that whoever abides in Christ does not continue to live a life of sin. That's what he's saying. Why? Because I've been justified. I've been declared not guilty. My sin has been washed away. It's not held against me. I don't live in the bondage of sin anymore because sin is bondage. I don't live according to those ways. Whoever sin has neither seen him nor known him, little children, let no one deceive you. Listen to this. He says, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So the person that does righteousness is righteous because the spirit of him in us, because the blood of the lamb that made me righteous, not my own righteousness, but the one that he credited to me then is inside me coming out of me. But he who sins is of the devil. He who, this is who continues to sin continue to live a life of sin. So I said, they still make themselves known as children of the devil. He said, don't let anybody deceive you. He who continues to live a life of sin is still of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning for this purpose. The son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Sin. His blood also cleanses our conscience that we might serve God without guilt and full assurance of faith. 
This one should really make you excited. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience. Okay, now not just, now not just my, my soul and take away my sins, but cleanse my conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This word for conscience in the Greek is defined as to see completely. It, it regards a moral consciousness to, to understand and now become aware. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience by the blood of Jesus. This was prepared to make the conscience pure, right? When we look at the Jewish cleansing, the sprinkling of blood related only to what was external. The old covenant, it was only related to what was external and it could not make the conscience perfect. But the sacrifice offered by the savior was designed to give peace to the troubled mind. There it is again. The troubled mind, he's given us a sound mind and to make our mind pure and holy again. So now again, a sound mind free from all guilt and shame of my past. So he didn't just cleanse me. Doesn't just give me power now to overcome the enemy. He gives me free mind now, a sound mind free from guilt Free from shame, free from wrong thinking and the taint of evil thoughts. I have freedom now to overcome those evil thoughts. The enemy shoots at me. An evil conscience is a consciousness of evil. It's a consciousness that's oppressed with sin. That is, it's a consciousness that accuses us of guilt. But we are made free from that conscience through the blood of Christ. Not because we become convinced that we have not committed sin. Listen to this. Not because we are convinced that we have not committed sin. And not because we are led to suppose that our sins are less than what we had otherwise supposed. Our sins were still nasty. Our sins were still Horrible. Our sins still separated us. Don't, don't look upon your sin in some way of saying, well, it wasn't that bad. We don't look at those things, but because our sins are forgiven and since they are freely pardoned, they no longer produce remorse and fear of future wrath. Guilt and shame no longer has control over me because the blood of Christ That's wonder working power indeed. Not just externally, not just making me new, but renewing my mind, giving me a sound mind then that I'm free from guilt. I'm free from shame. And if you ask me, I have regret for my past. If you didn't, I'd be surprised. I'm ashamed of some things I have done. But I do not live in my guilt and shame. Because the power of his blood has given me a clean and clear conscience. 
I've been made aware and I can see completely that I once was blind, but now I see this is that part of conviction versus guilt. We say conviction versus condemnation, right? And conviction arises when I sin. If I'm in the Holy Spirit, conviction arises when I sin. The Holy Spirit pricks my heart, my spirit to correct me and lead me back into repentance. Conviction always has a path back to God. It's always a path of repentance, of back to God. So, so if I'm in Christ and I sin and, and I feel that conviction, and I was like, oh, praise God, I feel that prick in my spirit. I can return to him. But guilt arises typically for me when my forgiven past is shoved back in my face. When the devil says, remember when you did that? Remember when you did this? Remember when you did this? And in the most uh, holy times of prayer, I get the most horrible, horrendous thoughts of things that I had done in my past. And that's when I remember because knowledge, what? Knowledge brings power. And I remember that the blood of Christ has washed away all my sins. I don't need to feel guilty for that. I'm set free. I've been made whole. I'm renewed. And conviction is good and it's cleansing. Be aware that if you're not convicted while living in your sin, (laughs) be very careful. Be be very scared if you're living in sin and you're not convicted of your sin. This is a hardened heart condition. The next thing is blood as it sanctifies the people of God. Hebrews 13, 12 says, therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. First John 1, 7 through 10 says, but if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First Peter one, two elect according to the knowledge of God, the father in sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied, be multiplied. So this word sanctification means to make holy means to consecrate means to set apart from the world and to be set apart from sin so that we have intimate fellowship with God and we serve him gladly. It does not imply an absolute perfection. But an ethical righteousness of unblemished character demonstrated in purity, obedience, and blamelessness. It's not asking us, it's not, it's not this absolute perfection, right? We say sanctification is a process. I'm becoming more like him. But I have been consecrated to him to be made more like him. By his blood, we have died with Christ and we've been set free from sin's power and dominion. And therefore we are able then to not sin and find victory from temptation to sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that once someone born again, it says you have to continue to sin. People don't like that. I have to. No, you don't. You don't want to control your flesh. You don't want to discipline your flesh. You don't want to separate from the world. You don't want to separate from people that you're supposed to separate from. You don't want to do the things that God is telling you to do. His blood enables us to live separated lives. There's power in the blood. 
But are you appropriating that power? He enabled us to live a separated life from the lifestyles of this world. Sanctification is a requirement for believers in Christ. For scripture teaches that without holiness, holiness, no man shall see the Lord. That's Old Testament, New Testament. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And we achieve this by the blood of the lamb. Here's the part. Sanctification is both a work of God and a work of his people. We are participants in the Spirit's sanctifying work by separating from the world. We participate in the Spirit's sanctifying work in us by ceasing to do evil. We participate in the Spirit's sanctifying work in us by puring ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. We participate in the Spirit's sanctifying work by keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. You have to be engaged in this process. It's both a process of God and man. God working in us, us doing our part in the sanctification. His blood opens the way for us to come directly before God through him in order to find grace. Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The real meaning of that last verse is to receive compassion in our weaknesses and trials. So when he says, find grace to help in time of need, it says to receive compassion in our weakness. And in our trials. I don't know who said this, but I thought it was a good quote. It says, the most dangerous of all temptations is to believe that one can avoid or overcome them by our own strength. Without asking the help of God. Let us therefore with confidence approach the throne of grace. This is a Greek term. It's a semi-technical term for the approach of a worshiper to God, how a worshiper would approach God. And I've heard people preach on this. If you come in and tell God what you're going to do, and I'm like, you better not. That's not what that means. We approach him as a worshiper approaches God. We come boldly. That means we don't have any doubt. We don't have any fear. We're trusting in the Lamb of God that brought us near. We're trusting in His intercession for us as our acceptance that we are united to God as a loving Father. And He has remitted to us the guilt and punishment of sin. That we may obtain mercy. Not only to pardon our past sins, but have compassion on our condition amidst trials and sufferings. That's part of it. And find grace to help in time of need. Now this, the the Greek here is time of need is a seasonable help. Which signifies a, a help that's obtained during a time of crying out for him. A time of need, right? It is typically that time of seasons of affliction, seasons of persecution, seasons of temptation. Or it can also be applied to times when God chastens us. Maybe he's chastened us for our lukewarmness or our sloth or hypocrisy, pride, 
our self-will, our discontent, our impatience, our neglect of prayer or foolishness or any fault or failing. He says, draw near. Draw near. The good father says in times of persecution, in times of affliction, in times of your own disobedience, draw near. That's what he says. Draw near. Why? For help. Draw near for help in your time of need. Right? And Job says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Well, where else am I going to go? Where else can you go? We're commanded to approach him for his grace in time of need. He said, if we are his children, we can come confidently before him and say, Lord, I'm hurting right now. Help me. I'm afflicted right now. Help me. Lord, you spanked me. Please help me. (laughs) We talked about that on Sunday. God disciplines those he loves. We, we, we don't run from him. We run to him even in times of discipline because he's a good father. So I say you take your licks and keep on going. He says, come to me in this afflicted season, regardless of why you're being afflicted. Maybe it's by the hand of God. He says, run to me because the blood of Christ made a way for us to draw near. Even in times of punishment. His blood is a guarantee of all the promises of the new covenant. First Corinthians eleven twenty five. it says in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, now may the God of peace who brought up Lord, the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. Working in you what is pleasing, what, what is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All these promises are ours because of his blood. It is a done deal. It's a done deal. When Christ said, it is finished on the cross, it's one word in the Greek. It's tetelestai. And it means, it is finished and the work will continue. That's what it means. It is finished and the work will will continue until he returns to take us home. The saving, reconciled, purifying blood of the lamb is continually appropriated to believers as we come to God through him. So I said, run to him. Run to him. If you're hurting, run to him. If you've been hurt, run to him. If you're broken, you run to him. If you're disciplined, you run to him. He said, draw near to me. I will help in time of need. You've fallen in your sin. Run to him. Because what happens when you don't? You fall further into sin. And it makes it harder to come back. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a lifetime of help as long as we continue to approach him in truth and sincerity. We approach him humbly as one who is reliant on him to see us through this life. To help us overcome all manner of sin and evil. And with all these great and precious 
these better promises, as Ethan said last week, come multiple real and serious warnings to never return to our old life of sin or to treat his blood as a common thing. It's not common. We can't trample on his blood. We can't count it unworthy of our love and devotion. The blood of Christ came at a high cost and it's not to be taken lightly, but it's to be taken soberly. And lastly, verse 28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Under the old covenant, the Israels watched intensely for the appearance of their high priest after he'd gone into the sanctuary to make atonement. It's one of the things in Israel, the priest, when he went in and they wanted to make sure he was coming back out. They looked intently. They waited for him intently to reappear. And he says, likewise, we know that our, our high priest has entered the heavenly sanctuary. And we wait earnestly. We wait in hope. We wait in an anticipation for his reappearance. To bring our salvation to its full completion. There is wonder working power in the blood of the lamb. Treat his blood as a precious, precious thing. Angie, will you pray? Uh, play? Will I pray? I just want to give you a chance to respond tonight. You know, if, if the Holy Spirit spoke anything to you, then just apply that word. It doesn't do you any good to come here and listen to me dribble on and go out and do nothing. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you would apply it to your life, it's life-giving. If there's anything you're struggling with, Folks, there is power in the blood of the lamb. This was not some, you know, book that you read and, 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 and pretend death. Our Savior's blood was precious and was spilt. And there was power in that blood. Power to restore, power to renew, power to make whole, power to overcome. Power to stop sinning. We cannot do it on our own. You have to have the blood of Christ applied to your life. You will not go to heaven if the blood of Christ is not applied to your life. If you are not born again, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, if you have not been washed by the blood of the Lamb, your sins remain. And on that day of judgment, you will go before the Lord and he will say, depart from me. I just want to give you a chance to respond to the message tonight. 
If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can say, I have not repented of my sins. I have not turned away. I have not accepted that sacrifice that he did on the cross, that he shed his blood, that I might be be made whole, that I would draw near to the Father, that I could come into intimate contact with our heavenly, mighty, eternal God. That you can be made whole. You can be made pure. You can be washed whiter than snow. If anybody here or you're watching online, if you do not know the Lord, all you have to do is tell him, Lord, forgive me. I receive your sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sins, Lord. Come inside, Holy Spirit, and dwell me and make me new, make me whole. Lord, and give me power to overcome this life. He's good and he will do what he said he will do. If you've been far away, there's no greater time right now than to return. Come to your senses and return. Say, Lord, forgive me. I trampled on your blood and I made it an uncommon thing. Lord, and receive me back, Lord. Father God, I just thank you for this word tonight, God. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Lord, let us apply this to our life, God. The life-giving power in the blood, Lord. The life is in the blood. Lord, I thank you. We praise you. We give you all praise. We give you all glory. We give you all honor, Lord. We thank you for the precious blood of the Lamb of God. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.